As you see there, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to two places. I'd like you to turn to Job chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Job chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A couple of introductory comments and then I'll get into reading for us from Job chapter 1. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the topic of our adversary, the devil, with the hope that in the end, our attention would be turned to Christ. Uh, That once we understand how effective, how diligent, how intentional, how strategic, how much he wants to destabilize our lives, that we would find ourselves, in light of his resume, fleeing to Christ. Fleeing to Christ because apart from him, we realize that we have no hope to stand against the evil one. Last Sunday morning, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and looked at his mode of operation and said that his mode of operation is to deceive, to distort, and to capitalize on our weaknesses. Okay? His desire is to take us down. And as we understand that he is a formidable opponent, not overwhelmingly powerful to the point that we fear, but powerful to the point that we respect... The hope, my hope, is that we would find ourselves fleeing to Christ and saying, Lord, apart from the power of your indwelling spirit, I cannot succeed in this battle. Therefore, I am going to commit myself to a life of daily, routine dependence upon the power of God and upon the power of Christ revealed through the presence of his indwelling spirit so that we may be strong in the battle that caused us, has, has called us to face And I just, I hope this thought resonates in your mind. This is, from the first two weeks, this is what I hope resonates in your mind. Respect, not fear. Respect, not fear. I am not going to turn and run in the face of the evil one. But instead, as Ephesians 6 and verse 10 says, take your stand. Take your stand, my friend. And be strong in the face of the opponent that we have. In light of the topic and discussion of our adversary, the devil, C.S. Lewis, made this observation. He said, we tend to err in two directions. We tend either to take him too seriously or not seriously enough. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. This, this is the kind of topic where you need to strike a balance in your life. And it's what I mean when I'm saying respect, not fear. Strike a balance. Realize the reality of his opposition, but realize that he is not ultimately and infinitely powerful. He has limited his capacities. He is limited in his presence. Does he have evil ones that help him? The realm that we know of, biblically speaking, as the demonic world. The answer is absolutely yes. So we cannot ignore him. Nor can we take him too seriously. We must gain and appropriate a balanced understanding of our adversary, our opponent, the evil one. The theme that I would like to discuss this morning is this. And this is, I'm going to make this assertion, and then I'm going to seek to defend it from the Word of God. Okay? If you are a devoted, committed Christ follower, if you have said, Lord, my life is yours. I trust you as my Savior. I rest in you for my forgiveness. I trust in you to live a life that is going to glorify you. If you take on an offensive posture, meaning I'm not going to sit back in, in, in the shadows of the Christian life. I am going to go out there and aggressively seek in the power of God to advance the kingdom of Christ. If you make that decision, you say, I am no longer going to sit in the shadows. I'm going to get off the bleachers and go onto the field of God and advance the ball 
that is the kingdom of God into the enemy's territory, if you make that decision to take your stand, okay, here's what I can guarantee you. You will face a certain and effective degree of opposition from the evil one. Effective Christians are likely, and this is the assertion I want to make, effective Christians are likely to face attacks, intensified opposition from the evil one. Be reminded that he is a living enemy, that he is crafty, crafty in a way that seeks to destroy our commitment to advance the ball. Okay, that's his desire, to stand against everything that God is seeking to do through and in our lives, and I mean that in every sphere of our existence. John chapter 16 and verse 33. This is the way Jesus brought it to his disciples. End of the discourse that he gives them prior to the crucifixion. He says, I have told you these things about the opposition of the evil one and about my indwelling presence so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. It's fascinating, isn't it? I have told you these things about my presence and about the evil one so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have peace trouble okay it's fascinating because it it is an apparent contradiction isn't it what it means is the christian life an offensive christian life that is seeking to advance god's kingdom and god's work is going to experience opposition from those that don't want the ball to be advanced okay so as you step out jesus says i want you to be of good courage i don't want you to be afraid i am with you in this world you will have trouble but I also want you in the midst of that trouble to be experiencing a peace from God that defies explanation, that passes all understanding. Here's what he says to produce peace in the hearts of his disciples. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now just think about that. In this world, you will have trouble. I want you to have peace. Take heart. Take your stand. I have already overcome the world. Now folks, when does he say that? He says that prior to the crucifixion. Prior to the display of his power, he is absolutely confident in his father's capacity to overcome the assault of the evil one that will lead to his death. And knowing that that will be overturned, he looks at his disciples and said, in this world you will face trouble. But be of good cheer and be people of peace because I have overcome the world. You know what he wants us to do? He wants us to be people that understand, yes, we have an adversary, but he has already been dealt the death blow through the cross of Christ. And through the resurrection of Christ, the power of God is put on display for every believer. And he wants us to be people of an enormous degree of confidence as we face opposition in every sphere of our existence. Because we know the end of the game. Okay, look, we all get put back on our heels sometimes I think in football, John Slack told me they call this being pancake, when somebody just runs into you and lands on top of you. I can't imagine having that happen to me by John Slack. Okay? I know what it is to have that happen to me with the evil one. I know what it is to be picked up and pushed back. I know what it is to experience a degree of discouragement at that point and a lack of peace and fear rather than respect. You know what Jesus says to you? He says to you, in that moment, I want you to get back up on your feet. You just endured an attack. I want to use that attack to demonstrate my power, my authority, and my glory in your life. He doesn't want us to lay on the field destroyed and discouraged. He wants us to get back up and face the opposition and what I think at times for believers are intensified attacks that we experience. 
And, and one writer put it this way. He said, once the reality that life is difficult, Christian living is difficult, is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Can you understand that? Once we accept the fact that it's difficult, okay, that fact will no longer matter. Meaning, it will not be the source of discouragement. Rather, it will be the means by which we drive forward in the power of God, realizing that, yes, this life that God has called me to is a difficult life, but it is not, as Satan wants to convince us, an impossible life. Okay, the purpose of his attacks is to render us ineffective, to leave us in fear, off the field, on the bleachers, observers of the Christian experience. God wants us to be on the offensive for his glory. Now, let me make three observations about how Satan works. And I've already covered some of these, but just I want you to think about three categories. And I want to spend our time focusing on the last category of how the evil one tends to work in the life of aggressive and active believers. Okay, three ways. First one is temptation, which is simply solicitation to do evil. Okay, a solicitation to encourage us to find satisfaction and happiness apart from God's provision. Okay, and I think that is clearly borne out, borne out James chapter 1, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Okay, just this broader category of temptation, which sometimes, let's be very honest, is simply rooted in our flesh, according to James chapter 1. All right, what, what does James say? Everyone is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust, his own flesh, and enticed. Okay, so there's a sense in which the temptations and struggles that I'm facing are rooted in my flesh. But what does Satan do? Okay. He prowls about looking for weakness in our lives and then seeks to attack us at those points. So, first category is this idea of temptation. Second category, I'm just going to use the word opposition. Some people will use the category of being oppressed. Okay, and probably if you've been around biblical Christianity long enough, you've heard of the fact that he is our adversary, the devil, our opponent in a court of law seeking to take us down. But he is also an oppressor. Okay, someone who seeks to uh, steal joy from our Christian experience. Now, what I want to say is this. If James chapter 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, that submission to God should be the daily experience of every Christian, correct? We should just be aware that I need to submit myself to God on a daily basis. Why? Because I have an opponent out there that I need to resist in the power of God, not in my own flesh. I would argue that living with some degree of opposition from the evil one, or sometimes what people will describe as a feeling of oppression, a more acute sense of his presence, okay, is normal Christian living. Okay, why? Because he prowls about seeking to destabilize, create fear, and take down. Okay, so just there's this reality that I believe is the normal Christian experience. I think it's revealed in the category of temptation. I think it's revealed in the category of opposition. When you are seeking to do good things, you will not sense that the evil one wants you to do them. Okay, so <clears throat> category of temptation, category of opposition. Now, here, I just want to address one question that comes up in this discussion of oppression or opposition. Some will also use the word to be demonized. Okay. Here's the question that comes up. Okay, is it possible for a believer to be inhabited by or indwelt by the Spirit? Can we be demon-possessed as Christians? 
Okay, that's a question that people ask, okay? My answer is found in the verse that I gave you on a card last week and there's some on the table in the back. And I want to encourage you to memorize 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. When? Already. Okay, you are from God and have overcome them already because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. John speaks to the believer about the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that is greater than any other force or any other authority that seeks to gain access into your life. So here's the picture. He cannot come inside of you because Christ has taken up residence by His Spirit. Okay, He can, however, oppress, can tempt, can create strong senses of opposition to your Christian experience. So as you begin to seek opportunities to advance the ball in the Christian life, to go on the offensive, to serve God more. Here's my warning to you. Okay, if you say yes to God and say, I am going to be more determined about my Christian experience. I am going to stop sitting on the bleachers. I'm going to get on the field and begin to seek to advance the ball. Here's what I promise you, you will face. Because it's what the Savior faced as he sought to do the will of his Father. You will begin to experience a heightened sense of opposition. Okay, and you, you need to go back and review the notes that we've talked about the last two weeks. You need to be, prepare, be prepared for a spiritual war. Okay, at the beginning of September, Doug Finkbunner is going to speak for the next three weeks. And then at the beginning of September, I'm going to do, do a two-part series on how you can prepare for the battle that I'm going to talk about this morning. Okay, so I wanna, I'm going I'm to uncover what I think happens in the lives of Christians who seek to become aggressive about their Christian experience. Who say, I am tired of laying on my back, being pancaked on the field of life. I'm going to get up and go and make a difference in the power of God. Okay, here's what I want you to know. When you make that decision, okay, you are going to begin to experience obstacles and fears and opposition and intimidation. It is true about every good thing that you seek to accomplish in your life. Every good thing Satan will seek to oppose. Okay, anybody who's married knows this. Any parent knows this. Anybody who seeks gainful employment knows this. Any young person who says, I'm going to go to school and I am going to be a Christian. Okay, I promise you, if you make that commitment in those categories in your life, in those experiences in your life, you will begin to experience not only what I believe is opposition, but a third category, and this is the third thought in your notes, is this. I believe you will begin to experience, at times, pointed attacks. Okay, I believe you will experience pointed attacks. I believe the pointed attacks will come into your life in two ways. One is from your own sinfulness, which we all have to wrestle with on a regular basis. Okay? My sinfulness can create opportunities for the evil one to, to, to engage me in pointed attacks at my life. And then secondly, I think pointed attacks are pursued by Satan and then this is the difficult truth they are pursued by Satan and allowed by God okay I had a friend call me a couple weeks ago a person that has my utmost respect in terms of their Christian walk and this is the question they asked me and it just started me thinking how do we armor our people how do we strengthen our people that as they go out and seek to do good things to advance righteousness how do we armor plate their life spiritually so that they can, when it's all said and done, they can still be standing for the glory of God? This is the question she asked me. 
She said, I understand the categories of things like temptation and opposition and oppression. Is there such a thing as a pointed attack? Okay. When somebody asks you that question, guess what? They think they're experiencing one. Okay, and the person wasn't trying to hide it from me. I knew exactly what they were asking me. Is what I am experiencing, as I think very carefully and seriously about intentional ministry in the context of this church, is there such a thing as a more intensified and pointed attack that I will experience when I make a choice to do righteousness? I think here's what I can say. I guarantee you that you will face pointed opposition. Okay, and it's going to come through two categories, okay? It's going to come through your own sinfulness, and it's going to come at the request and behest of the evil one. Okay, I just, I'll touch base on the first category real quickly, okay? Pointed attacks, that, that is targeted attacks that God allows and uses and that Satan pursues, okay? Pointed attacks may be the result of my own sinfulness. Touch base on this last week. If I harbor sin in my life, I am giving the evil one, the word in scripture is this, I am giving him a foothold, a rock in my life that he can place his foot against so as to leverage his influence in my life. Okay, if I tolerate unconfessed sin in my life, I am inviting him into my life. Okay, here's what I don't want you to think. I don't want you to leave thinking that every Christian is the recipient of pointed attacks from Satan personally every day. Okay? Because I don't think Satan's that good. Okay? I don't think he's that omnipresent. In fact, I don't think he is omnipresent. I think he has limited resources and he prowls about looking for people who have been weakened by something in their life that makes them a more pleasing, in his perspective, target. Okay, that's what I believe with all my heart. And I believe it based on a couple passages of Scripture. And I, I talked about these real quickly last week. I just list three of them for you. Ephesians 4, relational sins such as anger. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, in the context of marital struggle. Don't let marital struggle continue because if you do, you will give Satan a foothold, a place to operate. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when there is unforgiveness and bitterness Resting in our hearts, we give him a base of operation, a place where he can set up camp and wreak havoc in our lives. So I, based on these texts, and, and I also think if, if, you, if you pushed me for another illustration, I would say that Peter, on the eve of the crucifixion, was wrestling with pride. Because you can go back into the Gospel of Luke chapter 20 and find on the eve of the crucifixion, at the Lord's Supper, there was a debate amongst the disciples as to, who, as to what? Who is greatest? Who is the most prominent? Who is the most likely to succeed? That was the debate. Peter fell prey to pride and didn't prepare himself for the battle. And he got taken out by the evil one. Okay, he gave him a foothold in his life and Satan took advantage of that opportunity and brought devastation into Peter's life. So... Are we all directly targeted by Satan? Is there cause for that kind of fear? I think we need to say his capacities and resources are limited, but when I harbor known sin in my life that I don't confess, what am I doing? This is the way my one friend described it. He said, it's like we're shooting up a flare. 
that the evil one can quickly identify and then come in and take advantage of the opportunity that's present in the heart of a fearful and failing believer who is tolerating known sin in their life. I think there are abundant warnings about that kind of thing in the New Testament. Okay, so if I just become lax in my Christian life, become carefree and careless, and don't rest in the power of God, I end up where Peter is. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, watch and pray so that you don't become captive to temptation. Be aware. Okay, normal Christian living. In my sinfulness, I may give to him an opportunity. I may invite him into my life. My challenge to you in light of the pointed attacks that come from our own sinfulness is this. Don't give him opportunities. Don't give him places to work in your life. Don't harbor unconfessed, unaddressed sin in your life. He is aware of those things. And I believe in those cases, we'll come in and wreak havoc in our lives. The second place where these pointed attacks, I believe, occurs is when they are pursued by Satan and allowed by God. Okay, my response to my friend's question was, let me think about that. And I was with a brother in Christ. And I said, what do you think about this question? Normal oppression, demonized, those kind of categories of influence. And then this category of some pointed direct attack started to run through the mind, through various passages of Scripture that may demonstrate that there is a biblical model that justifies concern about pointed attacks that come in the face of those who are seeking to advance the cause of Christ. And I want to just, I want to touch base on four illustrations just very, very quickly on each of them. Okay? Who does he target? I think he targets effective, growing, committed God followers. What is his aim in these pointed attacks? If such a category exists, what is Satan's aim in those attacks? And I think this is his aim. It is to destroy faith, trust, obedience, and usefulness. I believe his aim is to bind with guilt and fear and despair. Because when he has done that, he has rendered you utterly ineffective in the cause of Christ. I think that is his aim. I'll give you four examples of people that I think were targeted by Satan and were defeated for the glory of God. Okay, four categories. The first one, I believe, is Job. And I'd like you to look at Job chapter 1 with me real quick. Let's just read through these verses. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Is this a pointed attack from the evil one? One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord God, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, what, what kind of person is that? That's the kind of person that Satan would love to destroy. Okay, that's the kind of person he would love to destabilize and destroy the testimony of. Satan, and you can almost hear the hiss of Genesis 3 here. Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds spread throughout the land. But stretch your hand out and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, now here's what I want you to see. Pointed attack, pursued by Satan, allowed by God. 
Okay, now here, here's my conviction. In this sort of attack, Satan has a clear aim. You know what he wants to do? He wants to cause Job to disown God. He wants Job to give up his life of holiness. He is in direct opposition to those that seek to live that kind of life. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself you may not lay a finger. Then Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Let me just real quick tell you what I think Satan's aim is in this discussion and what God's aim is. Satan's assumption is very simple, isn't it? Job follows you because you bless him. When you go to chapter 2, Job follows you because you protect him. In chapter 1, God allows Satan to remove the blessings of Job. And you know what Job says? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and he is still God. You see? The direct attack comes. What it, when Job loses all his stuff, in the end, what does his heart cry? I have God. I have God. And he is all I need. And, and you can imagine the absolute bitter frustration on the part of the evil one. Because the assumption was, if I take those things away, he will curse you to your face and die. And Job's wife went right down that road. Question the integrity and goodness of God. You know what Job said? Blessed be the Lord. And then he asked for a more pointed attack on him physically. And he is physically attacked by the evil one. And in the end, Job's heart cry, his commitment is to say, God, if you slay me, I will trust you. Now folks, here's what I can guarantee you. In the attack of the evil one, he did not aim to cause Job to become a man of deep faith in his absolute poverty. He did not want to hear from the lips of Job, if you slay me, I will trust you. You see, what was Satan's aim with Job? It is to get him to curse God and die. To destroy this glorious example of holiness and righteousness. God's aim is what? You you actually have to go to the end of the book of Job to find out God's aim, don't you? At the end of the book of Job, you find uh, God bringing Job, as it were, on the carpet and having a discussion with him about life, about creation, and then about two incredibly powerful creatures of God. And the point of the discussion that God is having with Job is this, Job, I created everything. I understand that you have deep, serious questions as you walk through this incredible gauntlet, this experience of suffering. But I want you to know, Job, in the end, I created everything around you. And then he gives the example of the behemoth and Leviathan, okay, which are just large, large animals that have incredible power and force. And what he's saying is, Job, I created everything and I control everything. And what is Job's response? He, he's swayed by the attack, but in the midst of the attack, you, you can find these kind of convictions that are emerging from him. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know I have an advocate on high. I mean, these are the things that are emerging out of this man who is being pressured and attacked by the evil one. And in the end, here's what Job says. In his, in his attempt to accuse God of being slightly unjust in all that's happened, and we totally understand that. In the end, Job says, God... Now I see you clearly, and I trust you more. In light of what you have revealed to me through this experience, my esteem for you, my trust in you is only heightened. Now folks, here's what I can guarantee you. 
when Satan overpursues in that kind of a way, he does not aim to cause us to trust God more. But if at the end of your circumstances that are difficult in your life, you can come to God and say, God, I know you in a way that I would have never known you before, and I trust you in a way that I would have never trusted you before. You know what our response becomes? Very similar to Job. I don't understand. I put my hand over my, my complaint. I silence my complaint. I trust you. Folks, here's what I can guarantee you. That is not what Satan wanted to hear. But it is what he heard from a man who experienced an attack from the evil one that was pursued by Satan and allowed by God. Okay? Satan's aim to destroy his faith. God's aim to build and to sustain the righteous life of Job as a testimony to his sustaining and God-glorifying power. I think also then, real quickly of Peter, Luke 22, Satan has desired, has asked permission to sift you as wheat. Now, here's the part that I think is fascinating about this. It is an attack from the evil one against Peter that is requested by Satan and allowed by God. Okay, so what, is, what do these patterns say? These patterns say that God is in and behind everything that you're experiencing. He is sovereign even in the things that sometimes we want to, we kind of want to get God out of that circumstance. We want to protect him from these kinds of things. But he's bigger than these things. He's bigger than these things. And so in Peter's case, there's a request on, his, on, on Satan's part to shake him and to destroy. His aim, I believe, is to destroy Peter's confidence and Peter's usefulness. Okay, if I can shake him hard enough, he would no longer be useful to God's kingdom. That is Satan's aim. God's aim, I think, is revealed in the prayer of our Savior in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. He says, but Peter, I have prayed for you so that your faith in this attack may not fail. And then he predicts his return. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, what is all of that saying? Peter, you're going to experience a direct, targeted attack from the evil one. Here's what I want you to know, Peter. I have prayed for you. And when you return, which is implied in, in the prophecy is this implication, strong implication, that you're going to turn back. And when you turn back, I want you to be a leader. And when it's all said and done, what happens? Peter comes back so strong. He is the lead apostle. Until Paul is saved, Peter is the lead apostle of the twelve. He is the strongest, most consistent, courageous proponent of the gospel of Christ. What was that the result of? It was a result of the shaking that he went through. That Satan pursued and that God allowed so that in the end, Peter would be a stronger and better man. Satan's aim to destroy Peter's usefulness, usefulness and his courage. God's aim to strengthen Peter so that his faith would not utterly collapse. Example number three, and this one probably a little more familiar to you. 2 Corinthians 12, if you want to turn there real quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Paul. And I think a passage that is fascinating, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul's been talking about the unique privileges that he has as an apostle of Christ. And here's what he says. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, proud, or self-confident and puffed up because of these surpassing great revelations. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh that is a messenger of Satan to torment or to buffet me. Sought by Satan, allowed by God. Okay, it's the third time in Scripture I can identify this pattern. I think there are others also. But I think this is another very clear example of a man who was committed to serving God faithfully, who experienced in light of that commitment a greater degree of attack and opposition. Folks, I think the pattern can be clearly established from the Word of God. What is Satan's aim in coming against Paul? Well, verse 7 tells you the aim to torment him, and the word literally means to buffet, to beat back, to subdue and destroy, to discourage. Satan had a flawed assumption that pressure would weaken Paul and that he would eventually give out and cave in to the pressure. So he seeks permission. Permission is granted by God and allowed by God. What is God's aim in this attack? Look at 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 8. Here's Paul's response. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Paul, Satan's attack is serving to bring you to the end of yourself. And at the end of yourself will be the beginning of an infusion of my power into your life that will cause you to be better with the struggle than you were without it. That's the outcome of this situation. Did Satan aim to make Paul a more God-dependent Christian man? Okay, the answer, it becomes very obvious as you study it, doesn't it? He seeks permission to attack. God grants permission to attack because God knows the outcome of the attack. The lesson is this. I am better with the struggle in my life and through the struggle in my life than I would be without it. Is that the aim that Satan had when he attacked Paul? Clearly not. Here's a conviction that started to settle my heart as I thought through this series of passages of Scripture. Satan is a classic over-pursuer. Okay, he over-destroys, he over-beats. And when he does, what happens? He drives the people of God into his presence where they find the strength they need. Which is why Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s said, Blessed hurricane that drives me to my knees. Bless God for the experience that brings me to the end of myself and says, God, I have to trust you. So the attacks of the evil one that aim to destroy, to make us weak, to render us ineffective, when embraced by believers, actually produce the conviction of Romans 8.28. What does Romans 8.28 say? It says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who have been called according to His purpose. Folks, I want to tell you something. That is not a shallow promise. That is a promise that for most people will only make sense in circumstances that cause them to see the reality and truth of that passage of Scripture. God can even take 
the assaults and over-pursuit of the evil one and cause it to be an instrument that makes his children more dependent and therefore stronger. It's why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 8, three times I pleaded for God to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. In this circumstance, my power will be perfected in your inadequacy, in your weakness. Paul's response, therefore, I will boast. Now listen, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest upon me. What happened to Paul? The attack was severe and serious. The outcome was that he was a bolder, more God-reliant man. Was that Satan's aim? I think the answer is very, very clear that it was not. When you face struggles and difficulties, would you have the courage to say to God, God, why have allowed you allowed this to come into my life? When you face struggles and what feel like more pointed attacks from the evil one, go to God. Don't immediately seek deliverance. Seek truth. Seek a lesson from God in that circumstance. Now you, you may, as Paul did, pray for God to bring deliverance. And I think a pattern is somewhat established here. But at some point, we may be praying for deliverance too quickly. And maybe what we should be saying to God is, God, in and through the circumstance that I am facing, teach me. Teach me a truth that I would never understand apart from these circumstances that you have allowed to come into my life, that the evil one pursued and you allowed so that you might show something glorious. The last individual I think about is Christ. I think in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus. And it's fascinating, isn't it? It says, the Spirit, capital S, led Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. And that's a paradox, isn't it? The Spirit of God led the Son of God out into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. I don't have time this morning to go into all the complications of that and, 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 and all the questions that kind of pop into our minds. But here's what I know. I know Satan's aim was to seduce the Savior with trinkets, with small fractional promises that would never penetrate the heart of God. Because he had something so infinitely valuable. And he had a character to display to the world through that temptation. Satan never thought that through the temptation of Christ that he would actually end up demonstrating and proclaiming the perfections of Christ. But do you understand that that is exactly what happened? In the pointed attack, the glory of God was revealed more clearly than it could have been apart from the attack. And the power of God was revealed more clearly in the face of that pointed attack and the success of the Savior than it would ever have been pointed out apart from that attack. Did Satan aim to show us and to display for us the perfections of Christ that are the ground of the gospel, the ground of our redemption, the ground of our forgiveness from all of our failures and mistakes? Did he aim to exalt that ground? I think the answer is very clear. It was not his aim. The outcome of those assaults from the evil one on the Savior 
are captured in the book of Hebrews where the Son of God is exalted as our hope and as our Redeemer and as our forgiver and cleanser. Hebrews 2.18 says this, Because He Himself suffered when He is tempted, He is able. Now folks, please understand this. He is able. To help those who are being tempted, attacked, and oppressed. Why? Because he is not sitting in heaven saying, intellectually, I know what you're going through. No. He came and experienced my life. He came and experienced my temptations. He came and experienced the attack of the evil one for us. And perfectly responded to it. We do not. He did. And as a result, He is able to help us in the most unique way who are being tempted if and when we flee to Him in the face of attack. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet in this way different, without sin. Therefore, in light of this life of Jesus and the perfections of Christ, that through His death, Those perfections cover the consequences of our sin through His shed blood and offer us the hope of eternal life. Through that, here's what what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our, and what's the next text, what's the rest of it say? In our time of need. Folks, you know what the text is anticipating? That you and I are going to experience opposition from the evil one. That opposition will at times be unbelievably fervent. Here's the hard truth. It is pursued by Satan. It is allowed by a sovereign God who aims to grow you and make you strong through the trials that he allows you to face. Now here's the wonderful truth. When he allows you to go into that trial, he does not push you into the building and close the door and say, good luck. Right? He doesn't abandon you to that. No, he says, you know what? We're going to go in there together. That's why Jesus says, I have not left you as orphans. I would never do that. Together, we will face, through and in my experience, the opposition and attacks of the evil one. And so, my point this morning, I think very simply, is this. We will experience attacks and opposition from the evil one. With Christ, we can succeed. There are examples of that in Scripture of people that did. And then Hebrews 2 picks up the example of Christ. Hebrews 4 picks up the example of Christ and says, in, in light of what He did for us, in light of His fighting temptation, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence in our time of trial so that we can find mercy and grace that helps us in our time of need. Now, I am confident of this this morning. There are some within our church who are going through unique and serious attacks. Satan's aim is to destroy your faith. God's aim is to make you the man, woman, and young person of God that he desires for you to be. And it is, that wrestling match, that struggle that you're dealing with, is not seen as the kindness of God, but it is in fact the kindness of God. He did not avoid those kinds of sufferings in his own life. He endured them and is able, in light of that, to come and assist you in a way that says, I know exactly what you were going through. 
He is able to comfort those who are going through times of struggle. When you go through a pointed attack, a struggle, a battle with the evil one, ask God, what is your aim? What is the lesson you want to teach me through this struggle? Remember, in the midst of that struggle, that the victory through Jesus Christ is assured. Study scriptures. Find people who wrestled through such circumstances and find your heart deeply encouraged through the Savior. Our overcome is certain because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. When the disciples of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 went out and experienced spiritual warfare for the first time, they encountered an amazing degree of success. Remember when he sends them out a group of 70, two by two? When they come back, they are overflowing with joy. Why? They're overflowing with joy because what did they say? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, yes. And as you began to advance the ball, I began to see Satan falling from heaven. Precipitously, his end was initiated when the kingdom of God on earth was initiated by the first sending out of the disciples. And when they began to assault the evil one, even the demons were subject in his name. I say that for this reason. Satan is no appropriate opponent to a spirit-filled Christian. Respect him, don't fear him. But I want you to notice what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I don't want you guys to go around thinking that the Christian life is all about power encounters. Okay, I don't want you to think that the Christian life is all about simply opposing the evil one. Here's what he says. He says, yes, yes. It's good that the demons are subject to you in my name. But then he says this. He says, but rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Folks, look, the reason we can stand is because of 1 John 4, 4. God lets the attacks. Are there any mysteries in the attacks? I'm going to tell you right now, absolutely. Absolutely. But when you begin to experience victory in the attacks, Jesus says, don't get caught up in the power encounter. Realize that you were assisted in that struggle because you were mine. Don't rejoice in this. Rejoice in this. Your name is written in heaven, which is very clear. You are owned by God. By the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have the hope of ultimate, not temporary victory, not the casting out of the evil one. No, you will overcome him completely. And one day he will be cast into the pit forever. That is the glory of Christ that begins at the cross and that is ultimately revealed in the book of Revelation. They overcome him as he pursues by the blood of the Lamb. And their joy is that their name is written in the book of life. And folks, if you know him, engage in the battle as you do. As you confront, remember, when you're afraid, when you doubt, when you don't understand the complexity of what God has allowed him to come into your life, remember that your name is written in God's book. That truth will change your life and will allow you to deal with the temptations, the oppression, and the attacks of the evil one. Because in the end, I know where I'm going. Because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Is your name written there? Do you know him personally? 
And if you do, our purpose in the Lord's table this morning is this. It is to celebrate what these symbols proclaim. Every time you partake of them. Jesus said, when you do this, you are proclaiming, you are making known my death until the day that I come. And when he comes, if your name is written in that book, the battle will be done. And the victory that we experience in Jesus forever will be secure. Father, would you help us this morning?